Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live variety night that aims to make you laugh, cry, and most importantly, share in a cathartic experience. This podcast lets you hear a little piece of that, as every episode brings you one of the performers from our last event. And what an event it was. On the 17th of May, Stand Up Tragedy was back at the Hackney Attic. We had some intensely tragic true stories, thought-provoking poetry, creative live fiction, entrancing music, and probably the strangest comedy that's ever taken place on the Stand Up Tragedy stage. All of that and some great extras will be brought to you on this podcast every Friday for the next few weeks. This episode, though, is a special deluxe edition of the podcast featuring two very different stories told by Yuri and Radcliffe Royds. Before we begin, though, I'd just like to take a moment to remind you that Stand Up Tragedy launched an Indiegogo campaign last week. We're taking our show up to the Edinburgh Free Fringe and we need all of our friends and listeners to help us get there by donating to our campaign. And in return, you'll receive from us a variety of different tragic gifts. Go to our website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk and the Indiegogo campaign is right there on the front page. And now, as promised, here's an example of the excellent performances that you'll be supporting by donating. Here are Yuri and Radcliffe telling us their tragic, true tales. Hello, 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 hello. Okay, so begins the ethnic LGBT portion of your evening. Yes, 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 yes. Well, a quota had to be filled, so here I am. Handsome Dave Pickering found a bargain in me. So, yeah, everybody seems to be having a great time. As Dave said, my name is Uf Mayuri. You may call me Ufs. You may call me Yuri, you may call me Fum or Fumma, but do not call me during Hollyoaks because I will not answer my phone when Jackie McQueen is on the screen because I basically love her. Um, everybody seems to be having a great time, everybody seems to be laughing, but I'm about to destroy all that by telling you about my dead Dan, so fuck the lot of you. Um, yeah, I can remember the day that it happened, actually. It was the 7th of uh, July 2001, and... It, it was a normal day, uh, weekday. It was actually my last day at uni uh, for the uh, second year I was there. And my mum was shouting about something or other. And my sister heard her running towards the door. I get it! I get it! That was her running and picking up the post because uh, she loved the post so much. Um, so, yeah, so we, then we heard um, uh, the rustling of paper and then the opening of an envelope. And then we received uh, a telegram um, from Nigeria that had said that my dad had passed away just one week before that, the 29th of uh, uh, June. So um, all I remember is a lot of screaming, a lot of grief. And my mum apologising an awful lot. Um, she was apologising because everything that I knew about my dad was through her negative eyes. She had told me very many terrible things about my dad. And so now this man, this amazing statuesque man that I later found out was really into Carry On and Sid James and actually a telegram. Most of you 
1995ers, all of you. Telegram is a, a written message sent um, via um, electricity through wires. It's not the internet. Google it. Let's go back to my story. Um, so, yes, um, yeah, so um, how did I deal with that? I just went straight to uni. I, I went straight to uni and finished my video about my vagina, my cunthood, whatever rubbish it was about. Um, and then I, uh, yeah, just uh, began the summer um, with this thing hanging over my head, this man that I didn't know, this awesome man, and I didn't get to ask him all these really cool questions about my, uh, my identity. And so I uh, got myself an uh, extended overdraft and took myself and my two sisters to Nigeria, the country of my father's birth. And that was really interesting. I mean, even from the airport. Uh, yeah, I remember, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I saw a guy selling uh, his two children and his goat just to get into Lagos State. And then there was the fact that we were not uh, allowed in, but only just enough uh, because uh, my sister has amazing tits and really big boobs, and everybody really likes big boobs, and she looks like Beyonce, so we're very, very lucky, and when they left us in. So the next day, um, it was The Wake, and we met a lot of characters at The Wake. Um, one of them I remember was my dad's uh, best friend, Captain Ronnie. Captain Ronnie, who loved to stand like this with uh, his naval cap. In fact, he wore it on the crapper, I heard. He, he actually wore it, um, uh, I don't know, like taking a piss. He wore it like when he was playing in the sandbox, when he was eating a burger, like he always wore this hat. And um, he was really into his job, actually. I remember him actually looking at all of us, all of the sisters, all of uh, me and my two sisters, and just like really praising them, the fact, oh, you two girls, you're very, that's very proud of you. And you're, you're gorgeous, very good girls, Africana, real Africana, beautiful girls. And then looking at me and keeping quiet. Um, I get that a lot. So, um, yeah, um, as Ronnie was busy berating us, talking to us, all sorts of things, uh, you know, interesting guy, he likes us one minute, hated us the next. Um, heard some shuffling. Um, this woman had wandered in, um, this old woman who basically looked like a crone from every single BBC uh, drama you'd ever seen, bent double, kind of like this with one eye, gummed clothes. You people, you people, if you cry, you get wuru wuru. Now, okay, for people in the audience who don't know what wuru wuru is, wuru wuru means stinky hex. It means stinky hex, and we were told, also by our cousins, that if we cried, we would get this stinky hex on us. Uh, if you mourned in any way, if you ate any food, somehow the magical um, evil would enter the food and into us and would be cursed for life. Interesting, and this is a funeral, um, as you know. So, um, the next day was the funeral, and five minutes before we were about to enter the funeral cars, we were told that, actually, your dad's coming along, and one of you has to enter the car with him and drive six hours out to the village. Um, unfortunately, my sister, the one who loves the post, drew the short, short straw, and she was the one that actually had to... Um, uh, enter the, uh, the van and uh, it being sweltering heat in Nigeria you can imagine uh, that it wasn't uh, 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 too great, it wasn't, it wasn't great at all um, and one thing I didn't tell you is that we had previously been sending money from London to Nigeria to preserve my dad's body and the, the money kind of disappeared like when it got to Nigeria, like apparently like um, a lion had like eaten it and it just like ran off like into the, yeah. And so the money, yeah, they just kind of, you know, used what they had left of the money. And, 
yeah, kind of fixed him up as best they could. So, you know, nobody was really going to say, oh, you know, who's, who's done one? Who's blown one off? Well, it would be dad smelling, basically, because he's still rotting. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, for my poor sister kind of travelled six hours with... Uh, uh, dad um, and me and my other sister in the other van and other family members through the beautiful landscape from uh, Wari, um, Lagos, which is southern western Nigeria, to uh, Oria, which is the uh, uh, village where my parents were born. And um, as soon as we got there, it was complete chaos. I mean, moonlight met us. It was basically differentiating uh, bushes from actual hairy, dark guys, like there was no light in the village. And we realised that we're actually we're in a lot of trouble here because uh, there's no electricity. Because there uh, is, I guess, the equivalent of EDF. They're called NEPA, and they love to take electricity at inopportune times. They just love to just stop. Oh, like enjoying like the World Cup, and all of a sudden they just said, "Oh, we're not going to let you have light anymore." So that actually happened. Um, and uh, yeah, from when the light actually came back, it was complete chaos, absolute chaos. Um, there were people flailing their arms, people crying, throwing food, arguing in this language that I thought was really colourful. Didn't understand anything. I probably speak the Queen's good English, so I was busy sort of listening to all of this stuff and just not really understanding any of it at all. It's like no Tumping Yard, no Chianti, no you know, no Melba toast for me. Um, I remember all I could remember hearing is like drumming, like, dropping. I thought, oh, they're bringing pork, bringing pork. Um, and actually, uh, my uh, uh, cousins kind of lifted me and lifted my sisters and they kind of moved us towards this crowd that formed like at the other end of the compound. I was like, okay, what's this? It's not pork, you stupid cow, it's not pork. Um, and in fact, this crowd was uh, surrounding this box in the middle of the compound and uh, everybody was kind of silent while the drums were playing and we actually found that um, we were being ushered to go and look into the face of our dead dad against our will. And that would have been the first time I saw my dad, like, in 18 years. The last time I saw him was about three years old. And um, probably, what, what was, yeah, probably about 20-something at the time. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so uh, we all pushed, you know, to go and look into the face of my dead dad. Like, oh, my God, like, shit. And, um, yeah, he didn't look great. He, did, he didn't look good. He, uh, yeah, was rotting and things. And that's the memory I have of my father. And all I remember is just looking to his face and thinking, shit, I'm supposed to be so much like you. I'm told all the time that I'm so much like you. And as I was kind of confronting my own mortality, just looking into his face and just thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is the single most beautiful and also destructive thing that's ever going to happen to me. It's traumatic. I, can hurt, I could hear my, uh, my uh, dad's friend, Captain Ron, in the background kind of making fun of my ass, making fun of my ass, making fun of uh, the way I looked. And that's it. <laughs> and you all look really miserable. I've done it. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, am I coming through loud and clear? Yeah. Can you hear me at the back? Good. Um, I, I've only got ten minutes and I've got a lot of information to get across. I want you to pay attention. Can you do that for me? And as uh, Dave, very, very generous, uh, if not timely um, or lengthy introduction, said, I achieved a lot uh, in my little life and I overcame the twin advantages of wealth and privilege to achieve all these wonderful things. And I'm not tonight going to talk about 
just me and my bad boy posh kids going downhill stories. Because most of my life, my parents have been described as, oh, those poor parents. And I thought I might just have one word from me to say, hang on a minute. There are two sides to every story. Now, what at this time of year, I, I'm such a bad mood because it, it, the weather is this perpetual winter. And I noticed, I listened to the radio, and, and I heard that bookings, seasonal bookings for holidays are up 20% year on year for this period of people chasing the sun. And I, like most people, used to go on nice family holidays. Just, I just want to check that I'm talking to an audience that knows about this. Has anyone here ever been on a family holiday? Uh, three of you, all right. A family holiday with your family? Okay. Um, when was the last time? Did anyone, has anyone done that in the last year? Right, okay. Well, I did go slightly off-piste in my life, but before that, it all had to start somewhere. And it started, for me, uh, very early on. I never really got my, uh, my parents. They, they are of a generation that... Um, God, I want you to cast your mind back to your teenage years. Some of you will still be in them, I can see that. That's the real tragedy here, is that I'm far too old to be standing here. Revealing my family angst. But the last time I went on holiday with my family, the last time we all together spent time, was back in the 1980s. In fact, it was 1980, probably before a lot of you were born. And my father, on family holidays, was a liability. <laughs> to be fair, he was a liability at any time. But on Family holidays, he was particularly a dangerous man to know. Because as soon as the doors to manual announcement came across the speakers, he would become Uncle Charles. Now you might think, oh, well, what's wrong with that? Well, Uncle Charles was the complete opposite of my father. Uncle Charles was gay and, I mean, in a jolly sense, obviously. I hate to think, of it. it may be right, he, he could have been all sorts, but he became Uncle Charles. And so as a family, you know, most families have roles. Everyone plays a role in their family. And the role I played in my family, God help them, was the peacemaker. I was the Henry Kissinger <laughs> of my family. And I ne we needed a peacemaker because my mother was of an ilk. I mean, I'm not trying to bleat self-piteously here, but had I been a horse or a dog, I would have been the happiest man alive. But I was human, and my parents were particularly ill-equipped to deal with the human condition. And my mother's idea of tender, loving care when, as a young boy, I was a bedwetter, was to, um, first of all, make me wear my sheets for breakfast, hoping that shame would uh, ameliorate my behaviour, um, was it didn't work, I have to say. Um, and a lot of my early childhood was clearly damp, but also, <laughs> also was racked with that sort of inadequacy feeling. And my mother had obviously watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because she upgraded from the damp breakfast sheeting combo 
to a device which was made out of table tennis netting material that when you wet it, gave you an electric shock. So at the age of six, I was fast becoming a proponent of ECT in a DIY fashion. And not only did it give you an electric shock, it also rang an alarm. So I still had the burden of shame to carry. And so family holidays were a trial. And we bought a house, my parents had bought a house in Portugal, in a place called Luge Bay, which is where the very tragic disappearance of Madeleine McCann took place. She wasn't the first person to disappear at Luge Bay. Year in, year out, my father disappeared and was replaced by this chap called Uncle Charles. Now, Uncle Charles could get it on. He could get it on with the best. And there was one night, I was with a group of friends, loosely called the Kill Patrol, to give you an idea of what we did. And we were out on the lash, and Uncle Charles turned up and was buying all the drinks. He was incredibly popular to everybody else, not to me. And I managed to persuade him on his birthday that it was really time to go home. Go home, Uncle Charles. And he tottered off down the hill so drunk, and I shouted after him, I've hidden the key under the plant pot outside the terrace. We had our house in a group of four in a row, all identical. And I sat there having a joint with some friends, just trying to get the evening off to a proper start, just about midnight. It was the second heat of the Algarve disco dancing competition. Check it out. The 1980 and 81 double-year winner is standing in front of you. Oh, yeah. But I left him and he tottered off and we thought, right, he's fine. About 15 minutes later, there was a shriek. There was a commotion. Lights were going on. And my father, Uncle Charles, so drunk, had got the key from under the flower pot. Everybody kept them there, I imagine. Had walked into the house, taken off his clothes and got into bed. That he was four doors down from our house was a problem, that the woman who was already in the bed that he got into spoke French and not English was a further problem. <laughs> the commotion was huge. I realised what had happened. I ran down the hill and I managed to find my completely naked father and hid him in the gas bottles by the front door. There was a little cupboard and I stuffed him in there. Don't move! The local police arrived, the guardo. It was a complete fiasco. My mother turned up in her Liberty print dressing ground and matching mule slippers. And I said, don't worry, Mum, I've got it under control. And just as we managed to calm the woman down, and I'd explained to her that a very shady-looking character was running off down the beach and maybe they should check him out, I thought, yes, got away with it. The policeman drove off, and just as he shut the car and drove... The door of this cupboard just opened and out fell my naked father just as my mother was shutting the front door and I saw the door stop and she just looked. Well, no amount of apology, no amount of I was just getting up for a wee darling was going to cover it. He was caught, banged to rights. She wanted to end it there and then I'm going home. The peacemaker, the Kissinger factor cut in. 
I said, buy jewellery, buy flowers, do anything it takes, but make sure... I didn't want to be left looking after him, to be honest. <laughs> and I persuaded him that we'd all go and to take Mum and my sister and me, and we'd all go to a family dinner at the fort, a rather posh restaurant. And we all went there to the fort, and he went off to get the drinks, and I saw him chatting up these two Dutch teachers, and I thought, oh, I'll nip that in the bud. Excuse me, Uncle Charles, just this way. Got him back to the table. We had a lovely dinner. My mother started to relax. You could see how hurt she was. And then my father said, why don't we go to the Privé? Now, the Privé had opened that year. It was a nightclub. Not yet a shady place, but getting there. Lots of black paint and smoked glass mirrors. And more importantly, a disco music. You never take me dancing. Right, said he, in Uncle Charles mode, we're going. He went off ahead to go and secure a table, and I strolled along the beach with my mother as the dutiful son in full Kissinger mode. And as we arrived at the Privé nightclub, there was a commotion and there was noise, and she said, oh, how exciting. I haven't been to a nightclub for 20 years. And you had to go down some steps and then turn a corner and then another corner. And we saw across the crowd and all the dancing going on, we saw a shirt flying. Mm -hmm. Then we saw a pair of trousers flying in the other way and a lot of people whooping and cheering and clapping in syncopated order. And my mother said, oh, I say, this place sounds such fun. And then there was a ruckus and a roar and the crowd booed with disappointment as some chap who had been doing a striptease to two Dutch teachers at the far end of the room, was led out by his ankles. One man carrying his ankles, another carrying his arm. None near his genitals, which were left in full view as he was marched up the stairs past me and my mother, waiting to join him. I'm sure you would agree Family holidays, never again. <laughs> Something to which I have managed to stick to since that fateful day in 1980. I hope you enjoy your evening. Thank you for your attention. So those true stories covered some real and personal tragedies. Maybe they made you think about some of the tragedies that have happened in your life. But what do Yuri and Radcliffe think about tragedy? We asked them before their performance. I don't know, I think there's something about me wanting to talk about stuff that's happened to me. I want people to kind of know that, hey, it's, it's all right. Like it's, cause I've been there, I've been through these things and you know, I, I didn't kill myself. Yet. No, I'm joking. Um, no, I, I, I'm still here and I, I, I want to share this thing with you so I actually know we're going for you're not alone. You're not the only person that's feeling like that on the planet. So, like, talking about it um, somehow, like, exercises it from the system. So, you know, I know that some people tonight are going to talk about really heavy things um, and I feel that some way of them coping about it. And I find that the people that I really like, the people I admire, the comedians, the actresses, the actors, the writers, anybody who I really admire, they have some element of that and they talk about it with humour, like, you know, 
and it's and it's always great. It's, it, for some reason, it's more, kind of more compelling because um, there's a real part of them that's really coming out. I mean, it's not kind of fake. It's not written for them. They're actually talking about this thing that happened. A lot of the things that are funny, particularly in British culture, particularly when you're actually watching programmes like our programming, there's a lot of it to do with tragedy or negative things happening. And we, some, for some reason, our reaction, which is probably incongruent to the way we're really feeling, is laughter. So I thought I could, I could do that. I've had a lifetime of that. It's fine. Tragedy is the central core of my being. And luckily for me, in a life well lived, finding the tragedy I think tragedy is as important in life as comedy and I think for me being able to laugh at my own often self-inflicted tragedy has given me a strength and an ability to enjoy rather than endure life now so tragedy is it is the very thing that makes us human it's not a beautiful woman will look at her face. She will see a mark or a blemish and think it's tragic that she's not perfect. The rest of the world would probably love her for that blemish. That's the role that tragedy plays. I think people take away a sense of hope. I think they take away either the realization that their own situation isn't as bad or is it, if it is bad, then uh, a sense that one day we will look back and laugh at this. Or indeed, thank God I'm not him. Yuri has so many talents, it's hard to know where to begin, as well as telling amazing stories. She's also the creator of the cult Little Apple Dolls. And she founded the artist collective Screaming Matriarch, which you can find out more about at screamingmatriarch.com. More anecdotes from Radcliffe's incredible life can be heard at various spoken word events across London, including at his regular gig running the open mic for Spark London upstairs at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton. He's there on the third Monday of every month. He'll tell some stories and you can tell your stories with him. And you can also hear him over on my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, where we've done three hours of conversations about his amazing and complicated life. And he'll let you know all about it through his Twitter, where he's at Radical Zen, or find him on Facebook and friend him. He loves to make new friends. Next week, we'll begin to bring you the performers that we had last Friday at the Hackney Attic. Subscribe to Stand Up Tragedy on iTunes, SoundCloud, or by using the Stitcher Smart Radio app on your smartphone. Stand Up Tragedy will let you know more about all of our amazing performers and artists using our Twitter account where we're at Stand Up For Tragedy and through our Facebook. So become our friend and like our page over there. Check out www.standuptragedy.co.uk for all this and more. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please support our Edinburgh Indiegogo campaign. We're going to be podcasting daily during the Edinburgh Festival. That's how much tragedy we're going to bring to you. So please help us to do that by giving us a little financial support. And until next time, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. All of our music was written and recorded by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at radiojuan at yahoo.co.uk. 
That's radio, H-W-A-N, at yahoo.co.uk.